Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, Ace. Hello, Ace. Hello, Hattie. I like that sounds like that we're some kind of like Frankenstein's monster host. Yes, we are. One host. (laughs) One host. Surgically stitched together. (laughs) Exactly. So I... I have a problem. Okay. I'm just going to start by saying. Uh, so you know, Ace, that I decided that I was going to, because my For You page on TikTok was just full of Twilight BS, and then they made it streamable on Netflix. So I said, you know what? I'm going to get on the hype train so that I can crap on it. <laughs> and now I see why people, A, now, now I see why people like it, like it's so bad that it's good kind of thing. And number two, my dreams have been haunted by like Twilight content my nightmares revolve around twilight content i tried to do that with the books because i was like if i want to make fun of them i have to have read them all so i know what i'm talking about and i made it halfway through the series and i was like you know what i don't want to dedicate my brain space to this anymore there's other things that i could be reading that will make me not hate myself i unironically read the first two books like my senior year of high school because I had read uh, Vampire Kisses, which was about a goth girl who was dating a vampire named Alexander. I don't remember if it was um, our, fr- our mutual friend or that mutual friend and my mutual friend, but one of those two got me into Twilight. <laughs> and I read the first two books and I watched the first two movies. And then I remember I'm sitting there trying to read the third book and I can't even get past chapter one. I'm like, this is bad. <laughs> um, so I stopped, but it's been so prevalent on on the um, the TikTok ever Is since. Is there the an anniversary or something? Or uh, Midnight Sun it... Midnight Sun came out right as the pandemic started, and that is the first oh, Twilight book told from Edward's point of view. Right. Okay. I forgot yeah. she was doing that with those. Okay. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, yes, I can see why 17-year-old heartbroken me was into this. <laughs> with the like, and so the lion fell in love with the lamb. What a stupid lamb. What a sick masochistic lion. I can see, I can see how 17-year-old me liked that. But like 29, almost 30-year-old me was sitting there like, this is trash. I'm going to watch the next one now. This is even more <laughs> trash. I'm going to watch the next one now. Okay, I'm done. I'm not going to watch the last movie. The f- that that fourth movie was horrific and then i'm sitting there like just no, sitting, no, just sitting there. i have to i have to i have to have i had to, to. <laughs> i had to finish it and i finished it and i'm sitting there laughing mystery those science are several theater hours 3- of your life you'll never get back yeah well i'm mystery science theater 3000 it with with uh with my husband and all of a sudden like i'm been it's 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 occupied too much brain space today I was having nightmares because the Harbinger was starting daycare today, and the yeah. the nightmares were about daycare, about the Harbinger going to daycare, but we were all Cullen, like, Twilight Universe vampires, <laughs> sending the Harbinger to a werewolf daycare. <laughs> so what you're saying is he ended up ruling the daycare with an iron fist. Is what well, that's why we call him the king. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the Snapchats. Yeah. See, my reason for reading the first two books, at least, was every time there's a new series that comes out, I always tell myself I'm not going to do the same thing I did with Harry Potter. Because when Harry Potter was 
first coming out in the States, when it was first getting published in the States, and I was in fourth or fifth grade, I had that mindset where I was like, anything that popular has to be stupid, lame, and dumb, and I refused to take part in it. So I didn't start getting into the Harry Potter books until I think the fifth one came out. And then when I got into it, I got into it really hard. And I was like, oh, I've missed so much. Why did I wait this long? So then every other series that came out where people would be like, if you like Harry Potter, you'll love this. And I'm like, well, I don't want to make that same mistake again. So I read the first two Twilight books and I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> Why yeah. am I doing this? Uh, see, I was always that little kid. And I think it was because a combination of uh, my parents are pretty hipster. Like I was the hipster kid before a hipster was really a thing. Like oh, I was into such and such before it was cool and you all mercilessly mocked me for it. So it was a combination of like, my parents were kind of hipstery, exposing me to like all like underground shit. And then also the fact that I had a lot of undiagnosed like neurological things happening that made me like that. Oh, this child is like far wiser and older than their age. And I was like, oh no, it was just anxiety. It was all anxiety. Um, but yeah, so I was always that kid that I was like, oh, you children and your popular fads, it must be stupid. Yeah, I hated people like you when I was Yeah, in yeah, I always, looking back on it, I'm like, oh god, I was miserable. I was a miserable child. I listened, so I listened to nothing but My Chemical Romance, like, for a year and a half. I mean, I literally, I would, I refused to listen to any other music except those three albums that were out in 2007, by 2007 for My Chemical Romance. Um, and when I finally started listening to, to, to more music, um, I, I started with like The Used because the, my boyfriend at the time was listening to The Used. And then I jumped to Red Jumpsuit Apparatus and I really liked the song Face Down. I heard it on the radio and I'm the kind of person that I can't get into new things. So like if it's forced on me through like the radio, then I can get into it. <laughs> so I'm like, yay, this is a kind of a comfort song because I listen to this on the bus to school and yeah, I can get into this. And I'm talking to someone's like, oh, you're emo too? Sit with me, emo kid. And we're sitting there like, so what kind of music do you like? I like it. And it's like all this like underground emo indie yeah. stuff. And I'm like, I've been listening to Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. And they're like, please, I haven't listened to them they're so May of 2007. Ever since Face Down became popular with the preps, nope, can't do it. They're dead oh, to me. And see, that's I like. I never did that. I was always the kid that was like, hey, I'm into like classic rock because that's all this, and folk music because that's all my parents listen to. So that's all I've been exposed to. And then so like I'd go into school and be like, I like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And everyone would just like, point at me and hiss like it was a horror movie like interloper and then by the time we got to high school and all that was cool again because hipsters and I'm like I'm like sharing locker space with this one kid that I've been going to school with since first grade and I was like is that a poster of Jim Morrison in your locker after you pushed me down the stairs for admitting that I listened to the Rolling Stones and the Doors like you were like those are stupid bands and you literally pushed me down a flight of stairs because that was how we bullied each other is that a picture of jim morrison from the doors in your fucking locker he's like no <laughs> i didn't deal with any of um those kind of hipsters like the oh i listened to this before it was cool ones <laughs> until college 
You might have actually been the first hipster I I actually had encounter with, but you were the you were the cool hipsters. Then I started getting into like then I started getting into like bigger college, like uh-huh. like grad school, and it's like oh. Oh, well, see, yeah. Trying to go with the like the logic of oh you haven't listened to this thing oh that's cool do you want to no okay cool let's talk about something else yeah you weren't the like the you because I don't want to ruin to somebody's modern. first introduction to a thing that I think is cool like so many things have been ruined for me because of like bad hipsters yeah anyways uh we should probably get like started on like this episode. Because I'm glad it was like, yes, yes, and it's probably going to be a bummer. I will have a uh, a nice little trigger warning to um, to add when it gets closer. Um, basically, if you're AFAB, cross your legs at one point. I'll explain. I'll explain more when it gets to it. There's no sexual assault or anything like that. I mean, like, you know, I, I just I'm just going to get into it. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, so we start uh, December 25th, 1893, Christmas of 1893. Uh, Edith Jessie Graydon was born to William Eustace Graydon, a clerk for a tobacco company, and Ethel Jessie Graydon. And the only information I can find on her is that she was the daughter of a police constable. I love her name. Yeah. Ethel. 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 Yeah. Love it. Uh, so Edith Graydon was born at home, as was the custom of the time. She was the eldest of five siblings. Uh, and she was very bright. She was considered witty and charismatic and above her time. Uh, she excelled in dance, acting, and ac- academia. And she was said to have a natural ability in arithmetic. So then they burned her at the stake because she was a witch? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in 1909, at the age of 15, she met a man named Percy Thompson, who was at the time 18. Because age gaps were not as creepy as they are now, apparently. Um, And they began a six-year courtship. They were actually engaged for most of it, but they didn't get married. I couldn't find reasons why. I like to think it's because she was a strong and independent modern woman who don't need no man. And in fact, immediately after school, instead of marrying and settling in as a housewife, she took a job at a fabric importer called Louis London uh, as a bookkeeper. And her charisma, personality, as well as her style and her intelligence gained her a very positive reputation within the company and led to several promotions. And we're talking like, this is Edwardian London, yeah, Georgian okay. London. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and eventually she was promoted to the chief, the company's chief buyer and manageress, and she was frequently making regular trips to Paris on behalf of the company. Okay. So All finally, right. like she has this career, she settled. Percy Thompson, her man, her beau, is now settled in as a shipping clerk. So they finally, in 1916, after six years, like I said, six years of engagement, uh, they get married. They get married January 15th, 1916. Okay. Uh, so, like I said, Percy was a shipping clerk. She had this really glamorous manageress, chief buyer job. So they were comfortable to the point where they bought a house in a very fashionable, at the time fashionable, uh, suburb of London called Ilford. It says at the time fashionable. My guess is people don't think it's fashionable now. I've never been. I'm not going to lay judgment. But at the time in 1916, it was a very fashionable su- suburb. Okay. Uh, So the documentary series that I watched that first drew me to this story uh, was Murder Maps, which uh, was on Netflix. I think they only have a few seasons, but when they had all of it, I watched all of it because (laughs) why not? Uh, And they claim that uh, 
Edith never really settled into marriage. I couldn't find any sources really talking too much about the the marriage themselves, but Murder Maps went on about how she was a modern woman with modern ideals, read a lot. She read a lot of like action romance and had like a vivid imagination and was romantic and didn't want to be like tied down to conventional roles. Hence why she had like this big time job that had her traveling. And Percy was a classic kind of conventional man with traditional ideals i can't find i can't find much more than that like i said most of that came from the documentary series i watched um but what we can discern is that by 1920 something was a little bit off at least in edith's point of view on the marriage so i'm gonna do a quick flashback rewind about a decade So Edith was, when she was a young teenage girl, as I said, she was the eldest of five. So she had a bunch of annoying siblings. And their annoying siblings would bring their annoying friends home. And one of her brothers would bring his schoolmate home, a nine-year-old boy named Frederick Bywaters. (laughs) Well, she met Frederick again in 1920, nine years later when he's 18. Except now... He wasn't an annoying little nine-year-old friend of her brother's. He was a handsome, worldly member of the Merchant Navy. How old is she at this point? She is, at this point, 1920, she would be 23 years old. Still not huge of an age gap. Eh. Yeah. Uh, So, by comparison, Frederick and Percy, so this 18-year-old seaman and her husband were night and day. Frederick was known to be handsome, but impulsive with a hot temper. He's 18. Yeah. Uh, he was known to tell stories of all of his travels around the world. And this really attracted Edith the most, as she was well known for being well-read and having an absolute love for romantic adventure. And he was just like the romantic, idealized men in all the novels she read. Her husband, Percy, on mm-hmm. the other hand, was um, the was word I kept seeing... The word I kept seeing was a staid, S-T-A-I-D, which when I Googled it, because I'm dumb and don't know the word, means sedentary and unadventurous. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, didn't that mean like, kind of like, I I hear that, I think like Flanders from the Simpsons. Like, Yeah, stick uh, in the mud. Yeah, stick very in the conventional, mud. very, I'm going to come home and you know, it's a good afternoon for me, tea. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah boring compared to this Frederick Bywaters. So Edith had and Frederick had this immediate chemistry, immediate sexual tension. It was very clear to everyone that they wanted each other. Clear to everyone except Percy, who was (laughs) what the kids would call oblivious and literally could not read the room at all. To the point where he thought it was a good idea to invite Frederick to holiday with them at Shanklin on the Isle of Wight the following June in 1921. To no one's surprise, Edith and Frederick began an affair on this very holiday. So now he, her husband's, I, I don't want to use the current slang for it. He was a cuckold. Yes. Oh my it God. gets worse. <laughs> so his wife and this 18-year-old are actively having an affair oh no. while he's on holiday with them. And he's still How oblivious. oblivious. How can you be that oblivious? It gets worse. Oh, no. He was so oblivious that he came to the decision that, hey, you know what, Frederick? While you're home in England 
from your travels in the sea, you can lodge with us. No. No. Oh my God, you idiot. Okay. For some reason that no one could see coming. After good old Freddy moved in, Percy began to notice that his wife and him were drifting apart. Who could have seen this coming? I don't know. I'm shocked. Yeah. Well, eventually, a month into this arrangement, things hit a bowling point where Percy finally figured it out. I have seen two different stories, so I'll just list both. One of them is that a month into Frederick living with them, a month of the couple drifting apart. In a month of this just tension building, because it's sexual tension between Edith and Frederick, and Percy's finally realizing it, and he's getting jealous, and it's like, it's just not a good combination. Uh, allegedly, Percy and Edith got into an argument in which Percy lost his temper, struck Edith so hard she fell to the floor, at which time Frederick, you know, intervened, and Percy was like, you're only intervening because you have the hots for my wife. Get out of my house. The other story that I've read is that a month into Frederick living with them, a month into all of this tension, uh, Percy was like, huh, you know, I think this dude's sleeping with my wife. So he confronted them, at which point a quarrel broke out and Frederick demanded in front of Percy that Edith divorce Percy. And Percy was like, get the F out of my house. And then according to Edith's account, allegedly after this incident, once Frederick left the house, Percy struck her several times and threw her across the room. So, Frederick returned to the sea, where he belonged. <laughs> Whence he came. Yeah, and Edith, from about September 1921 to about September 1922, wrote to him frequently. She wrote to him so much, and she wrote to him about everything. We're going to get more into that later, but he came back from his voyages and returned from the sea from yeah. once he came. Around September 1922, and at that point, they more than likely resumed their affair. Now, we get to the crime. Okay. October 3rd, 1922. The Thompsons attended a performance at the Criterion Theater located in London's Piccadilly Circus. Mikey. Yeah, they were well-to-do. They were very rich. So they were accompanied by Edith's aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. J. Laxton. (laughs) At 11 p.m., they left the theater and got on the tube where the two couples parted ways once they got to the Piccadilly station. The Thompsons caught the 11.30 train to Ilford. They left the Ilford tube station, and as they walked down Belgrave Road between Ensley and DeVere Gardens, a man jumped out from behind the bushes near the home and attacked Percy. There was apparently a violent scuffle at which, in this point, Edith fell to the ground. Neighbors recalled hearing a woman screaming, oh, don't, oh, don't, several times. By the time the man fled and Edith got to her husband, he had been stabbed fatally. And before she could summon help, before any neighbors came to the rescue, he died. But so by the time the police arrived, Edith was, and I quote, Unable to compose herself. Which I think is reasonable. She just watched her husband get murdered. Oh, yeah, that would... Yeah. Uh, But the police apparently thought this was suspicious. Uh, So they asked her, compose yourself. It's okay. Come to the station tomorrow for questioning. And she got to the station and they put her in an interrogation room. 
Apparently, in the time between when the murder happened and when she got to the station, they figured out that Frederick Bywaters was the person who stabbed Percy Thompson, and they arrested him. Okay. Uh, not to say that, like, I mean, obviously, and like, we, we saw where this was going, but like, these are the same police that, like, when confronting, say, a different woman who just watched a horrible crime be committed, if she didn't, if, like, if she had too much composure, they, composure, they'd be like, you have too much composure. Where are your emotions, you woman? Suspicious. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying, what, pick, pick, pick the side. What, come on. It's the yeah, 1920s. Welcome to the patriarchy. Ugh, stupid patriarchy. <laughs> Uh, can I just say, um, I, if you hear weirdly obnoxious licking in the background, that is my cat, <laughs> who, since I can't hold him 24-7, has resorted to just angrily bathing directly behind my chair, so. As we all do. Yeah. All right, so the main investigator was Inspector Frank Hall, and he did what, in my opinion, is some dirty, dirty-ass cop work. And she was still in distress the next day when she arrived to the station it's almost like her husband was murdered in front of her not even 24 hours beforehand weird weird how that'll how that'll make someone upset yeah but they kept asking her all these questions what happened they were trying to get her to contradict her story and finally they said you know we have frederick bywaters in the other room and he just confessed to the murder and he confessed that he did it because of you at which point because she didn't know any better and she was in distress she said that she saw that it was Frederick Bywaters and she confessed that they had had an affair. So while they were investigating Frederick Bywaters, they obviously searched all of his possessions and they found over 60 love letters written from Edith in his possession. You don't, okay, come on. Not, not to tell you how to plan your murders, but you don't hold on to that shit. You burn it. Okay. Oh, oh, it gets worse. Uh, I should note here that... <laughs> I'm just going to tell you some, the details of some of the letters. So, as I stated already, Edith had a love for romantic adventure. She was well-read, very romantic, active imagination, very emotional. What I didn't mention is she was also a bit dramatic, apparently. Edith had sent Frederick press cuttings describing poisonings that had happened in the area while he was gone. And saying, oh, this woman killed three husbands and I can't even get rid of one. She told him that she was pregnant with his child, but she did a self-abortion. She wrote about how she longed to kill Percy. She wrote to him in one letter saying, and I quote, you said it was enough for an elephant. Perhaps it was, but you don't allow for the taste making it possible for only a small quantity be, to be taken. This was in reference to her telling Frederick how she had attempted to poison Percy. She actually wrote of three different attempts to off Percy, including one by grinding broken glass and adding it to his mashed potatoes. Basically, the long and short of it is the police found 60 letters that not only gave Frederick a great alibi, oh, this woman wants to be with him, but the husband's in the way, but also implicated Edith in the murder as well. So because of this, they were both charged with murder. Uh... So it needs to be noted here that from the moment he was taken in, Frederick confessed, and he said this has nothing to do with Edith. When they brought the letters up, he said that he never believed that she ever tried to off Percy and thought the letters were just the romantic imaginations to express her suffering. He 
repeatedly through the investigation and the trial admitted to the murder but was insistent that he did so alone and by his own free will he said edith had nothing to do with it and had no knowledge of his plan so the trial began december 6th 1922 at the old bailey which i'm guessing is a courthouse in london yeah that sounds familiar i've heard of that before so Frederick cooperated completely, leading police to the murder weapon and again consistently maintaining that he acted without Edith's knowledge and that she was innocent. He stated that he merely meant to confront Percy. He brought the knife for protection or to threaten and was like, you better divorce her so that I can be with her. You make her unhappy. I make her happy. But then Percy had threatened him or threatened to shoot him and he went blind with rage and killed him that was his story and he said she didn't know about the murder because it wasn't a planned murder he said that edith's letters were the vivid imagination of a sad woman deeply in love with him fueled by the novels she loved reading sounds plausible yeah the only evidence they really had against edith was all the love letters which were fifty-five thousand plus words Written in a year period of time, and it was all being used against her. Edith's counsel were Sir Henry Curtis Benef, KC. And he begged her, do not testify. Do not testify. Do not testify. But she refused to listen to him and said, no, I'm going to testify. She thought it'd she be could... very dramatic. It'd be very oh. dramatic. And she thought that she could save Frederick. I mean... Even though he confessed and was as good as damned and it was her life that needed saving, she thought that getting on the stand would save his life. Curtis Bennett wrote later that she had no conception of the danger she was in. Okay. She repeatedly contradicted herself. She would explain things and then she would go back on it when she was cross-examined, probably in a panic. Uh, She stated that the letters were to, quote, impress her paramour end quote but when they would say oh so it was all just literary symbolism so can you please explain what this passage means she would say i have no idea <laughs> constantly i have no idea that okay 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 but in her defense i said that so many times as an english major but they'd be like yeah. explain this part of your essay and i'm like oh i cannot do that because i wrote it last night in a red bull infused haze of just madness yeah <laughs> but like i should preface the person who actually did the stabbing said she had nothing to do with it these letters were her vivid imagination i don't think she ever tried to poison percy I wasn't even planning on killing him until it went there, but I admit that I killed him, uh, killed him and I'll take the consequences. I wasn't even planning on killing him until I was stabbing him a bunch. Yeah, exactly. You know, boys will be boys. <laughs> or eight, nine, at this point, 19 year old men will be men. Violent and all. Stabby, stab, stab, stab. Yeah, stabby, stab. Yeah. He ran into my knife 12 times. So, uh, this super long trial went on for five days. I say super long facetiously because it was a five-day long trial. Oh, that's pretty short. <laughs> yeah. Both Edith and Frederick were found guilty and formally sentenced to death by hanging. Oh. Edith became hysterical and began screaming in the court while Frederick was loudly yelling, I say the verdict of the jury is wrong. Edith Thompson is not guilty. I'm surprised they, they sentenced her to death since she was like a fancy rich lady. Oh, yeah. They, it gets worse. 
So they were taken to separate prisons, as you do. Yeah, and on January 9th, 1923, at 9 a.m., both were hung at their separate prisons simultaneously. So Fredericks was a cut and dry execution. He walked I think to the gallows. Yeah. I think I remember this now. Yeah, he walked to the gallows. They hung him. He died. The end. Edith's is where it gets awful. Uh, AFABs, this is where you probably want to start crossing your legs. She collapsed in terror that morning. So the prison governor sedated her so heavily that she was almost unconscious and had to be carried to the gallows by four wardens. Now, let me break down what I mean by heavily sedated. Dr. John Hall Morton was not just the governor, but he was also the medical officer. And this is what he gave Edith that morning. At 8.15 a.m., he gave her one 32nd grain or two milligrams of strychnine. Ah. At 8.40 a.m., he gave her a combination of one one-hundredth grain of scopolamine morphine, also known as pure light sleep, and one-sixth of a grain of morphia. Yeah, that will knock the person out. <laughs> when the hangman, John Ellis, entered to, you know, bind her and get her ready for the execution, she was only semi-conscious, and according to his accounts, she already looked dead. When the act was completed, this is where it crossed your legs. When the act was completed and she was dead, witnesses observed blood dripping from between her legs. Some accounts suggest that she was pregnant, and this was the miscarriage caused by her death. Now, in England, a pregnant lady could not be executed. The execution would have had to be delayed until she gave birth. She was also incarcerated for three months from the arrest to the execution, so if she had been pregnant, it would have been very apparent. So the fact that she might have been is ghastly enough, but not as ghastly as what the other accounts state. Because the other accounts state that since she was heavily drugged and really had at that point had no control of her muscles, mixed with the fact that she had admitted to doing an at-home abortion and probably damaged her uterus, combined with the force of the drop, caused a prolapsed inverted uterus. And this execution was ghastly. It was it didn't just affect the public, the people who didn't believe that she should have, that she was innocent. It affected the people involved. Several of the prison officers who dealt with her went into early retirement, and John Ellis retired as an executioner and completed suicide a few years later in 1931. And that is the story of Edith Thompson and Frederick Bywaters. Oh. Um, I'm going to read you from... It's, this is actually from uh, edithjessethompson.co.uk. There's a whole website on her now uh, called The Case of Edith Jessie Thompson, A Miscarriage of Justice. It, this website is dedicated to the memory and the innocence of Edith Jessie Thompson, who died age 29 at Holloway Prison on the 9th of January, 1923. It argues that Edith Thompson's execution constitutes a grave miscarriage of justice at the mercy of a profoundly male-dominated justice system. Yeah. And they have some quotes from um, people from like best-selling author and journalist Edgar Wallace uh, was invited to cover the trial. And after the execution, he wrote, and I quote, never in our history has there been so terrible a miscarriage of justice or a verdict based so little upon evidence and so much upon prejudice as that which sent Edith Thompson to that filthy scene on Holloway Jail. The newspapers have not told you how beastly it was. I can tell you this, that if the true story of Edith Thompson's execution were ever published, half the people who read it would be physically sick. And the horror is intensified by the sure knowledge of every sane man or woman who can look facts squarely in the face, that she died innocent of the crime of murder, 
there were two murders committed in the Thompson case. The first was the killing of Percy Thompson. The second of the murders was committed at Holloway Jail on January 9th, a murder carried out cold-bloodedly, horridly. If ever the history of this country, a woman was hanged by the sheer prejudice of the uninformed public and without the slightest modicum of evidence to justify the hanging, that woman was Edith Thompson. Okay. So. You can get behind that, yeah. Yeah. Somebody's, if somebody's uh, really intense, like, creative writing is, like, evidence enough to condemn them to death, I would have been, like, charged with murder year, fucking years ago, just based on the terrible poetry I wrote in high school alone. Like, yeah. I recently went back onto my DeviantArt and was reading some of this. I'm like, oh, my, what the white privilege is all of this. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, here it is. The Independent wrote an article um Back in November 22nd, 2018. Laid to rest at last, Edith Thompson, victim of a barbarous, misogynistic death penalty. Subheader. As she is finally reburied in the same grave as her parents, those attending the reinterment ceremony say the 29 year old was guilty of nothing more than a scandalous love affair and being woman with ideas above her station. That's about right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the sources I used were, of course, this independent article, um, the edithjessethompson.co.uk, uh, Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and capitalpunishmentuk.org slash Edith. Yeah. That's good job, though. That's... Oof. Big oof. Big oof. They don't do death penalty in um, the in the United Kingdom anymore. Uh, maybe one day I'll cover the um, the crimes that essentially led to it being a no-no. Um, but... Whew. That's uh, unpleasant. Very unpleasant. Yeah, I don't know how to bring the um, the conversation up from that. Sorry. Um, yeah. Um. But like when I first heard the story and what happened, I like I did like the ultimate kegel. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it's as soon as I like because it was like kind of familiar, and then when you got, you're like, all right, now time for the execution. I'm like, oh wait, no, I remember this. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, awful. And I think like activists who were trying to stop her from being executed because they believe she was innocent were even like. What if she's pregnant? Can ha, doctors have you checked to see if she's pregnant yet? And doctors are like, no, nah, she's not pregnant. And then when she started bleeding, like it's funny because people are like, she was pregnant. That was a miscarriage. You just violated English law and put to death a pregnant lady. And it was like the officials who were like, no, it wasn't that she was pregnant. It's that she had an inverted uterus due to the trauma. And it's like, that's like that's any better? better? That's not better. <laughs> But just like, like yeah, of course that would have like if you're that sedated when with that kind of violent of an end for something that usually ends with you like tensing every muscle in your body and you don't do that, yeah, all your gravity's gonna gravity's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, awful, awful, yeah. traumatic. Do you have anything happy we can do to bring it up so we don't uh, end the podcast? I cat some more. <laughs> sure. He's very fluffy and he's sitting behind me. 
uh, just desperately trying to get me to pay attention to him by making sad noises and just kind of pawing at his little ball tower thing. Oh, poor oh, muffin. Pay attention, pay attention to me. Like I told you before, I've been home all day long. You could have been getting attention all day long and you were like, no. <laughs> they be like that. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Should we tell people where they can find us? Yes. Uh, if you have any true crimes or cryptids that, or any stories that you want to tell us, um, you can email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at trulyfabulouslymonstrous. And you can find us on Twitter at tfabmonsterpod. Yay. Oh. So join us for a possibly happier episode next week when it would be I cover a cryptid. Yeah. We'll be there. We hope you will too. Bye. Bye.